Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today I'm coming to you from my car. I've got a few trips to do. And uh, so I've got some time on the road and we're going to bang out a few podcasts on uh, Plato and Socrates. Now as we get to Plato, um, we're getting a little bit more into familiar territory. A few people might have heard of Socrates. Um, but very few people would have heard of Parmenides, uh, Heraclides, and these other guys. Um, Plato is well known, and uh, if you are any, at all familiar with the emergent movement and postmodernity, uh, Plato comes up often because he's the bad guy. He's the guy that's supposed to be responsible for modernity and for everything that's wrong with how we think and how we do church and how we view women and things like this. Uh, so many of you are familiar somewhat with Plato. Um, although I need to warn you that um, his reputation as being the founder of modernism is completely incorrect. That was something that the emergent folks uh, completely had wrong. Really, it's Immanuel Kant that is the father of, modern, uh, of modernity and it's the Enlightenment. Um, but uh, that's uh, not a hero there. Let's look at Plato in his original context. Uh, because he's really, um, well, Alfred North Whitehead said, all of Western philosophy is basically a footnote on Plato. And what he means by that is everybody basically traces back to Plato. Uh, and yes, there'll be people that reject him, there'll be people that, that drastically change him, as we'll look at Aristotle next. He, he changes a lot of things. And yet, everything kind of traces back to him. He is kind of the granddaddy of Western thought. Uh, so it's really impossible to underestimate his uh, importance and influence. Um, a few introductory things. There's not a lot to know about his life. Um, not a lot is known about him until uh, he witnesses the death of uh, Socrates, who is likely one of the disciples of Socrates. Uh, he may have been a statesman, somebody in high office. Um, didn't seem to do anything really incredible with his life, although there's a bunch of um, kind of myths that came out about him afterwards. Maybe he traveled to Egypt. Maybe he traveled the world and, and listened to all the sages of the world. Um, it seems unlikely that he did that, although he talks a bit about Egypt. Um, he likely knows about Egypt more from secondhand information, uh, although it is possible that he traveled to Egypt. The early church, as we're going to talk about soon, uh, was very influenced by Plato. And uh, so some of the church fathers, beginning, I believe, with Justin Martyr, um, said, theorized that perhaps Plato was influenced by Judaism, and they would have said that he was influenced by Moses, you know, the author of, of uh, the Pentateuch, kind of the core of the Old Testament, first five books. Um, it, anything is possible, uh, but he never mentions anything about Judaism. Uh, he never mentions by name anything about the Jewish God. And um, it just seems unlikely because Judaism, um, I mean, Greece is over to the west of Judaism. Judaism had roots down in Egypt, obviously in Palestine, and then out east in uh, Babylon. But they didn't get up towards Greece very much. So anyways, historically speaking, it's unlikely that he was influenced by Judaism. Although um, that was an idea that uh, was very popular uh, in the early church, I think all the way up to Augustine might have thought that, I don't remember exactly. Certainly there were certain fathers that thought that. And the reason they thought that was because Platonism looks an awful lot like monotheism. 
It looks an awful lot like Judaism. Uh, obviously also like Christianity and like Islam, but these weren't on the market yet. We're talking 400 uh, BC, 450 BC. Um, and so there, there's strong similarities that we're going to get to, that he, he saw all of reality as being organized by one principle and, and by sort of an invisible, eternal, supernatural element. So we'll get to his ideas soon enough. Um, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, he's a disciple of Socrates. Everything we know, we know through Plato about Socrates. Well, just about. Uh, I think there were a few other authors that wrote something about Socrates. Aristotle mentioned him as well. But most of what we know comes from Plato. And Plato makes Socrates his mouthpiece um, to, you know, um, record some of the things that Socrates likely said. But then later on in his life, he basically came up with new ideas, such as the world of the forms, that Socrates hadn't thought of. Um, they were kind of further extrapolations on his ideas, but he hadn't got that far yet. Uh, and so Plato uses Socrates as a mouthpiece in his own works. Um, something else that's interesting is that Plato uh, founded a school called the Academy, uh, and this became the template then for later Greek schools that then eventually became templates for uh, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the university. So universities grow out of uh, what Plato started, this academy. Um, and he, he gave lectures for his philosophers in the academy. Um, it, it was kind of a professional school where people would come there to be trained. And again, you think in, in the terms of uh, the sophists, and there was good money in being a philosopher at the time. Uh, and Plato would have held himself above, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a sophist, I'm not here for hire, I'm not here for pay, uh, I'm not here to just treat, train you how to be a lawyer, I'm here for absolute truth. And yet, um, very likely, okay, this is me, I believe it's very likely that a lot of sophists would have seen this as a way to get training so that they can then get out there in the world and make money uh, by training people uh, how to speak. Uh, and training people how to um, win a law case. Uh, and, and then also the academy starts to spill out other spin-off movements. Uh, a lot of the disciples of Socrates then make spin-off movements. Maybe you've heard of the Epicureans. Um, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we shall die. I believe that's the Epicureans. Um, that's kind of a vulgarization of his actual ideas, which were far more complex than that. Um, also, there were... Uh, Stoicism, I think, came later, but it kind of spilled out from uh, this think tank, which was the Academy and Socrates and Plato. Um, anyways, I can't think of them all off the top of my head. Obviously, I don't have my notes in front of me here driving. Um, but there were a lot of people that were being trained that were then going out and becoming movers and shakers in, in the world of thought. Some of them, you know, created movements that are still leaving a lasting impact on Western thought. Um, in addition to, to Plato. So um, he lectured for his students, these guys that would come and study with him in the university, in, in the academy. But he also had an interest in bettering society. This is something he shared with Socrates. Socrates uh, really felt a strong bond to Athens, to his city-state. Uh, this is something that democracy really gave the people, was a really strong sense of identity. Uh, we are Greeks, and more than that, we are Athenians, and that means, you know, we care about our, our city, we care about our state, 
Uh, we're going to fight for her. We're going to lay down our lives for her. And Socrates literally died for his city-state uh, and for justice and truth. Um, and so, where was I going with that? Yeah, Plato as well, he wants to help save his city through philosophy and through bettering society with good education, good music, uh, good rules about how society should live. This is how he saw it, that he was going to make his impact in the world and really make the world a better place. And so he wrote a number of popular level books uh, that were meant to be understood by the masses, uh, by the educated masses, mind you, but not so much, uh, you know, the people that came to study in this university, they were expected to already know a fair bit about uh, geometry, already know something about the Pythagoreans and, and their ideas and, you know, Parmenides and, and philosophy so that when they come, he can bump them to the next level. Uh, and so what we actually have is his books that are made more for a popular level reading, uh, which means that Plato is fair... That, that also contributes, I think, to his um, his wide appeal because he's easy to understand. Uh, and when he's writing, I mean, he's a brilliant guy, right? And so when a brilliant guy says, I'm going to write a popular level book, it's usually still fairly difficult. Um, it's usually still filled with pretty heavy concepts. And yet he tried his best to make them understandable. Um, this is contrasting with Aristotle, who um, spoke for the people. He gave kind of public lectures or sermons for the people, but he wrote books for uh, his students. And so Aristotle's books read like a textbook, and they're very dense, very hard to understand. Um, but if you master them, they, they yield better fruit, in a sense. Uh, there, there's more precision in Aristotle than there is in Plato. Alright, so the other thing that's interesting about Plato is that um, we have all of his works um, this is somewhat unusual for uh, somebody writing 400 years before Christ. Uh, the pre-Socratic writers, we just have them in fragments. Uh, none of doesn't seem like any of their books or hardly any of their books were really preserved. Most of what we know about the pre-Socratics we know through Plato and Aristotle and the books that they wrote about them uh, because they're going to be interacting with people that came before, they're going to quote them. Uh, and Plato is actually going to kind of resurrect uh, some of these earlier philosophers. They become kind of fictional characters in his dialogues where he's pretending that Socrates is talking to Parmenides, is talking to Heraclides and these other people who are now dead. Um, but he uses them as mouthpieces uh, to workshop how various ideas would work in, in a conversation. Imagine this guy came back to life and was talking to Socrates. Uh, this is how the conversation would play out. Um, so, unlike uh, these guys before Plato, we have most of Plato. Uh, in fact, um, Copleston uh, says we don't have anybody, uh, or there's no later writer that quotes Plato um, that we don't have that book. So, oftentimes with other authors, I mean, we're going to talk about Aris, uh, talk about Augustine, and Augustine quotes a work of C Cicero and says that the, the book Hortensius was a very important book in his life. Uh, but basically the only thing we know about Hortensius is that Augustine read it and that he quoted it. Uh, the book itself is lost to us and that's very normal because we're talking a really long time ago. But most of Plato's works, uh, in fact it seems as though just about all of his works are kept for us. Uh, tragically though we don't have any of his lectures and it would have been great to have some of his lectures. Um, 
because again we have his, his um, popular level works uh, which really lay out the concepts uh, but when you get into the fine details it's sometimes hard to know exactly what he meant uh, and so that's where it would have been nice to have some lecture notes where he gets a little bit more precise maybe a little bit more dry and boring uh, but might have helped to understand with more clarity what he meant alright so that, that'll do for an intro to Plato um, let's get into his thoughts now, his ideas. So we talked about how Socrates, uh, he brought two things to philosophy according to Aristotle. One was um, inductive reasoning, this Socratic method, seeking to know more um, about the world through uh, remembering, uh, <laughs> it's not a word, through remembering, remembering um, what we already know. And he's driving towards uh, first principles, or he's driving towards a, a universal definition um, of what actually is, you know, good, or what is true, or um, what is, you know, the one thing that makes everything else make sense. Um, and again, his, his emphasis was mostly on ethics, but that becomes a window then for exploring how all the world works. Uh, one example of this, I believe it's the the dialogue called Fido, or else maybe it's Mino, I forget which one, um, but uh, this is a dialogue that might be more Plato than Socrates, it's a little bit hard to know in some of the dialogues, um, but uh, the author has Socrates talking to somebody, um, and I believe it was uh, Fido, but it might have been Mino, I forget. Um, and this person was coming to the courthouse, and, and Socrates was there because he was on trial. It was kind of this long, ongoing thing where he was on trial. And his friend comes, and he says, I'm... And Socrates says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I have a trial to... Uh, I have something to bring before the court. And he said, oh, really? Were you brought up on charges? And he says, no, I'm, I'm accusing somebody else. Well, who, who are you accusing? He says, I'm accusing my father. Really? Why in the world are you accusing your father? And he said, well, we had a slave... Uh, the slave did something wrong, and um, so my father tied him up and beat him and left him in a ditch. And he was going to go back and uh, get him. By the time he went back and get to get him, uh, the slave had died. So I believe that even though my sla my father's a freeman and this slave is a slave, his property, uh, what he did was murder. So I'm going to go accuse my father of murder. And Socrates says, really? Why? How could you do that? You're going to destroy your family name. You're going to be ostracized, all this stuff. And he says, well, right is right. Wrong is wrong. I have to do what I have to do. And Socrates says, really? You believe in an absolute definition of right and wrong? Please tell me what is the basis of right and wrong? And this becomes this huge dialogue where uh, he says, well, where they push towards what is the definition of right and wrong? And he says, well, um, you know, he starts off with, there's a right way to be a son, there's a right way to be a daughter, there's a right way to be a citizen. All these different roles have right and wrong based on, on the role that you're in. And Socrates isn't satisfied with that. He says, but um, there needs to be something higher. How can you say something is right and wrong, there's a right and a wrong way to be a wife, um, unless you're looking at it from some objective sense. You're not just saying this is my preference, you're saying it's absolutely right and wrong in some sense. Um, and it's been, a, I read this a few months ago, I forget the, all the ins and outs of it, but eventually they push towards, um, he doesn't actually get a conclusion, he doesn't get a satisfactory answer. 
but he keeps pushing towards what is the source, what is the center, what is the ground of ethics and morality that makes everything right and wrong. Because his friend believes in right and wrong. In fact, he's ready to ruin his family over it. And the readers look at that and say, well, that is murder. You're right. That's wrong. Um, but nobody can, can say, Where, what's the actual reason why this is right and wrong? And so he's pushing towards some sort of absolute center of right and wrong. And also of, you know, organizing the world and what makes a circle a circle, what makes a triangle a triangle, um, what makes the world tick. Um, and so Plato comes along and he says, there is a world of forms. You can say. There is a world of the forms that um, everything uh, is based on patterns uh, which are called forms. And so uh, this seems to grow out of geometry. Uh, Plato, uh, the, the motto for the school was, he who does not know geometry need not apply. And apparently he turned away some prominent philosophers because they didn't know geometry. Again, thinking of the... Um, the uh, what are those guys called? Um, starts with a P, has to do with triangles. Um, anyways, the group that I talked about before, it's slipping my mind. Can't look at my notes because I'm driving. Um, uh, so, uh, this group that I talked about in the previous podcast um, was very focused on math, also geometry. And um, one way to kind of slide into Plato's thoughts is to ask, um, ask you to imagine a perfect circle. And if I say a circle, all of you right away think of a circle. You know what a circle looks like. You know what a circle is. It's a ray with an equal distance to a central point is what the technical definition of a, of a circle is. Um, there's a central point and this line wraps around it. All points on the circle are equally distant from the center. Now, has anybody in, in their lives actually seen a perfect circle? And the answer to that should be no, because most of the circles, for one thing, they're not perfect. They're either squished, they're oval, they're um, not consistent. You know, you see a flower, it's almost a circle, but it's not quite consistent. Um, but more importantly, um, it, for it to be an equal distance from the center, it has to be a two-dimensional line. Uh, it has to have width and length, or it has to have length but no width. If it has width, so if you draw a circle on a, on a paper, there's an inside and outside edge of that circle. And so it's not a perfect circle anymore because all points on the circle aren't equal distance from the center. You have different distances, whether you're talking about the inside or the outside of the circle. And so um, this perfect circle doesn't exist in the real world, same as the perfect triangle, the same as, you know, the other geometric shapes, same as a ray, you know, in geometry we talk about a, a ray that continues indefinitely in one direction, starts at this point, continues indefinitely. It doesn't exist in the real world, and yet all of us can imagine that in our mind. We have an idea what a line is, a line segment, you know, from this point to that point. We have an idea what a ray is, has a beginning but no end. So these, these concepts are the basis for understanding, you know, the world around us. Um, or at least it's one way to see the world around us is through geometry. Um, and yet, uh, it doesn't exist in the real world. And so Plato's reasoning is, 
if we can imagine it, if everything is based on it, but it doesn't exist in the real world, there must be some other world, some other reality, where these these forms actually exist, these patterns actually exist. And so he talked about the world of the forms. And so we talked about uh, how uh, Heraclides and Parmenides said the world that you can see is... Um, is less real than the world that we can discover through philosophy. Heraclides said, you might think that mountain is permanent, but it's actually moving. And Parmenides said, you might think that you're moving, but you're actually standing still. And um, Plato is going to say, the world that we can see is like a shadow world. And it's based on the world of the forms. The world of the forms is the real world. That's the concrete world. That's the world that doesn't change. That's the world that is that is real form and real substance. And the world we have is based on that world. Okay, so now he's also going to do something which is really genius. Some of the best geniuses in history, I mean, some of them come up with great ideas, but the real geniuses that are kind of turning points are able to take a bunch of great ideas that came before them and meld them together. And this is what Plato does. He takes the idea of being from Parmenides uh, remember Parmenides said um, nothing can move because there is being. Being exists. Being does not come from non-matter and it doesn't go into non-being. Sorry, it doesn't come from non-being, doesn't go towards non-being. Being just is. It just exists. And it says, okay, the world of pure being is the world of the forms. So everything that Parmenides said about pure being, and he said a lot that I couldn't cover, obviously there's a lot even that I haven't read that I don't know. He was a major philosopher, um, probably the major philosopher among the pre-Socratics was Parmenides. Um, and he wrote a lot about pure being. And Plato says that is the world of the forms that everything is based on. But the world that we are in is like the world of Heraclides, where you cannot step in the same river twice. Everything is in motion. Everything is changing. So what is the principle of organization? Because even though the world is changing, the world, you know, it's always different, there's still order. Heraclides talked about um, logos, the word, and uh, I think it was Anaxanomies that talked about um, mind, nous, as organizing the world. And he, for Plato, it was the world of the forms, that somehow the world of the forms sends out order into the world. And it does so in a way that it does not change. This is really important. It's not like a candle that's burning and, uh, you know, the wax is, is, is wearing out. This isn't how he saw the world of the forms. The world of the forms emanates order without itself using, uh, without being depleted, without using up its energy. In fact, without changing, without being part of time. Uh, that's that's another big principle that's going to get worked out uh, later on. Uh, how does time fit into all this? But the world of the forms has to exist timelessly because otherwise it's moving. And again, Parmenides said, pure being cannot move. Uh, it's got nowhere to go. It didn't come from non-being. It can't go towards non-being. It has to be static and unmoving. So the classic illustration from Plato, which you actually might be familiar with even if you don't have background in philosophy, is the cave. Um, again, remembering that Plato wrote for the masses, um, he wrote a really accessible uh, analogy or parable called the parable of the cave, 
to illustrate what he meant by the world of the forms and how that interacts with the world that we're in. He said, imagine that um, there were a bunch of prisoners, uh, or slaves I should say, and for some reason they're chained, not only their hands and feet, but actually their heads, so that they can't move their heads back and forth. All they see is straight ahead of them. And behind them is a low wall, and behind that wall is, um, and behind that, that low wall, against the far wall of the cave, there's a fire that's, that's flickering and sending light on the wall that they're looking at, okay? So they're looking forward at this, this wall where they're seeing firelight reflected on the wall. Between the fire and them, behind them, uh, there are people which, for whatever reason, are carrying images, uh, kind of like a puppet show, all right? So it doesn't have to make sense. It's just this is illustrating a bigger concept. So there's kind of this puppet show going on behind them where people are carrying images of horses and, and sheep and trees and mountains and they're looking at the wall in front of them and they're seeing this basically a shadow show, a puppet show made with shadows. And this is their whole world, is looking at these shadows. So presumably these slaves have been there since birth, this is all they know. And there's some rhyme and reason to uh, this puppet show, it's not just random. You know, there, there is some sense uh, to these forms that they're seeing. And they're trying to understand, you know, reality. And this is philosophy, is, you know, looking at these forms on the wall. Well, this is life. He's trying to look at these forms on the wall and understand reality. And reality are, it's, it's shadows. We're living in a shadow world for Plato. And he said, now imagine that one of these slaves was able to get free. And he broke free of his chains and went out to the world um, above ground, out of the cave. And he saw real trees and real horses and real sheep. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, at first his eyes would just be so dazzled by the light he wouldn't be able to understand what he's seeing. But eventually he would realize this is the real deal. What I saw in the cave was just a shadow of a form of a horse, but this is a real horse. It's moving, it's breathing, it's, it's real, it has essence. Um, whereas what I saw was just a shadow. And then eventually he's going to be able to look at uh, higher and higher forms, maybe the clouds, and eventually, and, and birds, and eventually he'll see the sun. And the sun is the highest form and the form that gives light to all the other forms. And so, and then as the uh, analogy continues, um, he, he says, well, imagine now this person ends up going back into uh, his cave. No, sorry, we won't go there. We'll just say, um, this is how Plato saw or how he illustrated how he saw the world. That the world that we see is like shadows on the wall. It's changing. It's fluid. It's a little bit random. It's confusing. Um, and any order that there is, is because it's based on the real world. And the, like, you know, the world of, of real horses and real animals. Um, and the sun above ground. Everything gets its, its life and energy from the sun. So Plato would have seen everything is based on the world of the forms. And the highest form within the world of the forms is the form of the good. Um, so there would have been like a perfect triangle, there would have been a form of, um, 
of manliness, of uh, what it means to be a human. Um, later, you know, a big debate later on is how many forms are there? Does every single particular thing have a form? Like, is there a form of, of dogness? Is there a form of chair? Is there a form of, um, I don't know, um, of me? Uh, because eventually it gets a little bit ridiculous if you try and make a form for everything. And so it seems a better way to understand Plato in, as saying um, there are basic forms, such as the perfect triangle, uh, isosceles triangle, uh, right angle triangle, uh, circle, oval, square, um, ethical forms such as justice and, and virtue and, um, and things like that. And based on these basic forms, you can create all the other realities that we have in our world. Um, artists sometimes will use triangles to diagram a face, for example, and through right angles and isosceles triangles, you can diagram somebody's whole face and work it out in, in sections, even though a face is, you know, round and three-dimensional. You can use geometrical shapes to figure out, you know, and, and chart and map out a face so that you can draw a, a good representation of it. So this is the sort of idea that Plato would have had, that we're, we're based on uh, the world of the forms. Alright, when I get home, I'm going to pull out my notes and go through, there's 10 points of clarification that uh, I somewhat memorized for my test, ended up remembering 9 out of 10, that was pretty good. Um, and we're going to go through those one by one and really help to understand uh, what Platonism is and how he workshopped that out and some of the problems that he himself saw in the system. Towards the end of his life he wrote a book called Parmenides where he uh, resurrected, so to speak, Parmenides um, to have a debate with Socrates and uh, this is the only time in all of his dialogues where Socrates lost an argument, uh, was arguing with Parmenides and it seems as though Plato, towards the end of his life, realized, okay, this is a great system we've got developed here, but there's a few holes in my logic. Uh, and as I go back and think about things from the perspective of Parmenides, I realize there's some questions I don't have answered yet. And so he wrote that book to kind of point out some of the flaws in his system. He answered most of them, but a few of them he's, he admitted he couldn't quite answer. And so interestingly enough, as, as with some of the great geniuses in history, he is his own worst enemy. He is the one that raises the best critiques against him, his, his own system. And Aristotle later on is going to critique Plato. He's going to build off of Plato and critique him. And some of Aristotle's critiques are just going to come straight out of Parmenides. He's just going to recycle Plato's critiques of himself and just... Uh, forget to uh, conveniently forget to footnote where his sources came from. So we're going to do more of an advanced study of Plato in the next podcast. I'll give you a heads up. It's going to be more involved, more academic, unapologetically, unapologetically so. Um, but you're going to be able to skip that if you want. You can just go from this podcast right on to the next one about Aristotle if uh, you're just enjoying the flow and just want to get the overview of um, what these guys thought. So, um, towards the end of his life, as I mentioned, he was starting to see there are some flaws in my system. And one of the big flaws is how in the world did we get here? If there's this world of the forms 
and we're down here in this, this world of shadows. How did we get here? Um, so it was important, building off of Socrates, that we have some sort of memory. So it's as though we came from the, the world of forms in some way. But how did we end up here? And so, um, building off of the early, earlier philosophers, he would have seen matter as eternal. Uh, God didn't create matter. Uh, matter is uncreated. It just always is. But it's unformed. It's chaotic. Um, it's similar to uh, the principle of water. If you study, um, well, this might not be helpful if you haven't studied it, but ancient Near Eastern religions saw water as eternal and chaotic. And so, sort of out of the eternal chaotic waters, um, the gods were able to form. Well, the first gods were born kind of out of randomness and chaos. And then the gods were able to form earth and, and people and things like this. And it's interesting, I made this point in one of my podcasts, it's interesting how um, atheism kind of pushes back to this same idea. We need an infinite sea of chaos so that we can give birth to order. Uh, and this is kind of the same basic idea that these early Greek philosophers would have had, that there's just an infinite sea of chaos, which is matter. Or else uh, Aristotle will talk about prime matter, which is different than what we would think about as matter. Um, and uh, somehow form is impressed on matter by the world of the forms. But the world of the forms is unchanging and matter is eternal. So what is there between these two that causes change to happen? So one of the last books that he wrote was called the Timaeus. And in that book, he proposes a likely myth. And so um, it's really important that we understand what he means by likely myth. What he means is, um, I don't know what to do here. This is a hole in my thinking. And the best I can do is come up with this story. And so he comes up with this story called the Demiurge. And he says, this is a likely myth, but don't, don't hold this entirely as my idea. It's just a theory I'm proposing. And of course, and also, um, he's doing all this through dialogues. And so um, this is where, you know, he's kind of, people are asking him, well, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? And he says, well, you know, if you really push me, I guess maybe the best I can come up with is this. Um, and so through that, what he's saying is, um, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with this answer, but this is the best that I got. And so he, he gives forward this idea, he calls it the Demiurge. And it's the shadowy idea of some sort of a creator being, uh, perhaps identified with uh, mind or soul, I forget which one exactly. Uh, well, I guess with, maybe with soul, with noose, uh, sorry, with noose would be mind. Uh, so not with word, but with mind. Uh, perhaps this, this being has used the form, so he looks up to the forms which are unchanging, which are pure being, and he uses that to order and organize uh, and bring order out of the chaotic eternal matter, kind of this eternal waters or the eternal, you know, matter. Uh, and that's how uh, he creates the world that we're in. That, um, and somehow through the, the work of the Demiurge or something, um, people, come into existence and we have pre-eternal souls 
Um, our souls existed before, yeah, and we were closer, we had access to the perfect forms in our previous existence, wherever our souls were. And then we get trapped in these bodies of um, matter, and we're in this shadow reality. And um, that's, that explains why uh, we remember, uh, we have this shadowy memory of the perfect forms. And that's why we observe that all around us is order, uh, but it's corrupted order. Everything is in change, is in flux, and yet um, there's some impression of perfection on it. The geometric shapes are all around us, uh, and we know that there is such a thing as perfect justice, perfect, perfect truth, even though we don't have access to it anymore. So these ideas are going to be really helpful and important for Aristotle, and he's going to take them to the next step in a way. And he's also, in another way, going to uh, provide a different direction. There's going to end up being kind of two roads that diverge in a wood. You can either do philosophy according to Plato, the way he does it, or you can do philosophy in the school of Aristotle, the way he does it. And uh, the church is going to follow Aristotle's plan or Plato's plan for a long time until the Middle Ages, and Thomas Aquinas is going to turn over to um, Aristotle and really chart the path for the Catholic Church. And then in the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Church is going to go back to Plato uh, through um, Augustine and through, um, uh, yeah, kind of taking things back to uh, how they were before Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and so, um, yeah, the next podcast we'll talk more about Aristotle and uh, what he did for um, philosophy, his contribution, and that's going to be fundamental. That's going to be um, important for laying a foundation for where philosophy takes it from here. Um, so, in saying that, again, there is going to be a more academic podcast coming up, um, and you can take that one or you can skip it. Uh, if, if this is sufficient for you for an understanding of Plato, then just skip that one. If you want to dig deeper, uh, go ahead and listen to the next one, but it's going to be more academic. might be a little bit harder to understand, and we'll get to that one. Hopefully, I'll be able to record that one tonight. So uh, we'll move on to Aristotle now.